MediaKicks is the leading influencer marketing agency, connecting the world's top brands with engaged audiences through social media influencers. Their campaigns drive brand awareness, audience engagement, and product sales for top brands like Nordstrom, Blue Apron, David Yurman, Hallmark, and more. Visit MediaKicks.com to get started with your influencer campaign today. Welcome to a very special edition of All Things Video, our first live stream episode brought to you by YouNow. I'm your host, James Creech, and today we're excited to welcome Gregory Strompolis, Director of Business Development at YouNow. Gregory spent four years at Fullscreen, where he launched the Channel Plus Brand Services Division and opened several international offices. He's a new friend who is extremely knowledgeable about the online video space, and we've got all sorts of fun surprises planned for this episode. Gregory, welcome to the show. James, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Excited to have you. You studied econ, Chinese, and Spanish at UNC Chapel Hill, and then you worked in global trade after graduating. Uh So I can see how the language background plays into that, but what got you interested in the import-export business? Great question. So as a point of clarity, I studied international economics. Okay. Which is just Good a enough. fancier version of economics. Sure, sure. I studied Ch- at a minor in Chinese and Spanish for business and uh, was always very interested in the world and uh, its languages and cultures. And I knew that I wanted to do international business in some capacity. This opportunity came up through this gentleman that I met at a company called Import Genius. And I thought they were doing something really interesting in the international trade intelligence space. Mm-hmm. And I basically just pitched him to let me work for him. And this was my first job out of college. And I wanted to just be really opportunistic and see what I could do. You know, do, uh, I didn't know exactly where I was going to go with it, but I knew uh, they were doing something very special. A note about Import Genius. Import Genius is a cool company because they, they, have, this, they have this way of monitoring ocean freight shipments coming into the United States. And previously... All this information was being reported to the government. And because it was being reported to the government, it was a matter of public information. These are public records. And so anyone actually could have access to these import bills of lading, right? The the things that identify what the imports are. But no one was making use out of that data. And it was actually incredibly difficult to access, basically just sheets and sheets of paper, right? Mm -hmm. And so the people who came up with this business... Very smart uh, guys, uh, Ryan and David Peterson. They said, you know, let's figure out how we can get that data. We can access, turn it into a database that'll be searchable by importers. So importers can see what competing importers are bringing into the United States and kind of get some intelligence. Okay, so, you know, I import Chinese style chess boards and I get them from Shenzhen. Where are my competitors getting from and what price are they getting them for? How much are they spending on imports? What volume of shipments are they doing? And that became very valuable information for people who are in the import-export business. The company really got a lot of attention when it made an announcement about Apple. Apple, as you know, is a very hush-hush company when it comes to when their products are going to launch, uh, what they're going to look like, all that. And this is a t- around the time of the iPhone 3GS, I believe. Mm-hmm. They said, we have the data, we know, we can say with certainty that the iPhone 3GS has arrived. We have the data to prove it. And what happened was Steve Jobs caught wind of this 
And he got really upset, <laughs> <laughs> as he probably should. Mm-hmm. And mind you, Import Genius was doing nothing illegal. They were just surfacing public records. He wrote this scathing email to our founder saying, what are you doing with that information You know, in your database? You don't have the right to that. And you know, these guys are good businessmen. They're very ethical. And they say, look, as a courtesy, we're going to take this down for you. But just you know, for the record, we're doing everything completely legal. And we're actually bringing transparency to an industry that basically has not. So all these tech publications caught wind of that and they're like, wow, this is actually really special. And so it was that anger and that email really that from Steve Jobs that kind of like put the company on the map. <laughs> um, and this was all while you were working there? It was all while I was there. And uh, so I came on and I, I worked on a number of different businesses, kind of, you know, the Swiss army knife of the company, but uh, most notably worked on a lot of the Latin American businesses had a big passion in international still, as I still do today, and wanted to figure out how I could apply my skills in language and uh, foreign culture to you know make something great or do something great at that company. Let's talk more about that. So you speak five languages. And uh, you've told me that your dad speaks several languages. Is that what prompted your interest in it? Or did you just always have an ear for it growing up? Great question. Both Mm -hmm. is the answer. And I grew up in a part of Denver, Colorado, right in this basically what is a suburb called Aurora. And it's a, a very diverse neighborhood. Very, very diverse, which is not typical of Colorado. Colorado people think of as generally one color and in class. But the high school I went to had over 56 different languages spoken at it, which one, for one thing was a huge source of inspiration. So I was really inspired by, you know, having the world at my fingertips right there and not having to be in New York City to have that or, you know, some big cosmopolitan hub. And then uh, my father does speak ton of languages. Uh, he speaks more than I do and he speaks them well and he speaks them with, you know, multiple different dialects. Mm-hmm. And so we grew up, I'm Greek, grew up speaking what I would call kitchen Greek in the house where you are um, basically being yelled at in Greek and responding. Uh, You are, you know, you know how to like put a meal together and like recount how you did that in Greek and things like that. And then the neighborhood I was in had pretty big Mexican presence as well. And so I grew up speaking that uh, street Spanish and, uh, you know, dipped in and out of classes when I could. In college, I said, I need to learn a world language, something that I can uh, use for my future. And that's when you picked up the Chinese? And that's when I decided to learn Chinese. And is that Mandarin or Cantonese or both? Mandarin Chinese. Yep. So I had, again, the great pleasure and fortune of having a father who spoke Mandarin Chinese. So I could be in the middle of a Mexican grocery store looking for ingredients to make a Greek dinner asking my dad how to make that dish in Chinese. That's incredible. (laughs) Wow. That's amazing. Um, You know, to this day, I call him. We speak a minimum of three or four languages when we talk to each other every day on the phone. So I learned Chinese at school. I went to China, took it very seriously, ended up teaching Chinese at the MBA to MBA students. I also taught at the elementary education level. And then in my last job, got sent down to Brazil to open up the Brazilian office. So naturally started learning Portuguese and, and uh, now I speak the language. So mm-hmm. that's kind of the history of, of learning those languages. But uh, what was the hardest to learn? I would say they're all hard for a different reason. Chinese, Chinese is hard because of the reading and the writing. It's a lot of uh, rote memorization, a lot of 
technique and practice doing things over and over and over, saying words over and over, walking around the house saying, you know, like my roommates, you know, I don't know how they put up in college. I think Portuguese is actually harder in a sense because the language is really easy to, you know, understand for coming from a Spanish background, but it actually got really confusing with Spanish and in, in, uh, Portuguese. Imagine. Yeah, I heard they're similar, but so different and so many kind of their nuances Absolutely. make it challenging. And then and I think uh, Greek's always been difficult in the sense because we didn't have like a very formal education around that. You know, everything you learn is just from your upbringing. So they're all hard in some sense. And, you know, some people ask me, how many languages do you speak fluently? And I have a hard time answering that question, to be honest, because it's like saying, well, can you do math? And it's like, yeah, I can do math. But what level of math are you doing? Are you doing addition and subtraction? Or are you doing like, you know, calculus and like you know, quantum physics and things like those applied mathematics, all these things, you know, what complexity and what niche within the language do you understand really well? You could speak for hours about medicine, but you might know nothing about business. And so for me, it's different in each language, but I'm always trying to learn more, always trying to, you know, push myself to learn more. And you never, you're never done, mm-hmm. never done learning language. So you mentioned your last job and going down to Brazil to open an office. Let's talk a little bit more about your time at Fullscreen. So you started at Fullscreen around the end of 2011. I uh, came over to start the brand services business, Channel Plus. Tell mm-hmm. us about the initial period over at Fullscreen. So I was working in at Import Genius at the time. I uh, was very into the international side of what I was doing and um, really thought that was uh, something I always wanted to be doing. I noticed at the time, uh, George, my brother, and who was the CEO and founder to this day of Fullscreen, was starting a business. He was thinking about leaving YouTube. You know, as he kind of picked up some traction, it became more and more interesting to me. And I realized that at some point it was going to become an international business. You know, nobody seeks to just have a national business. There's always more people out there. There's always more markets to go after. And you yourself, of course, know this of all people. I thought there were some things that I could do to, to help that business. One on the international front, but I also knew there was a space in the kind of like service level side of things that full screen um, wasn't tapping into. And the last thing was I wanted to live in New York. Uh, I was living in Arizona for this import genius job. And Arizona is a very beautiful place. I love but the place. <laughs> it's no New York. But, <laughs> but it's, it's no New York. And I had a uh, special someone that was in law school in New York at the time. And I uh, you know, wanted to get out there. And so I was talking to my brother and I was saying, hey, you know, does it make sense to open up in New York? What can we do out there? And he's like, well, yeah, let's let's talk about it. And we figured out this brand services business was going to be something that is a real thing. So when you talk about brand services, walk us through a little bit more what that looked like. Sure, sure. So when I came on board, that was my job. Mm-hmm. Right? That was the Figure this thing. out. How do we work with brands? Exactly. Yeah. For, figure this out on a service level, not mm-hmm. in terms of doing branded content, in terms of Influencer marketing, those kind of kinds of things, those came along and you know intertwined within that business. But it was really just okay. There are all these media companies who now realize, wow, there's a lot of people on YouTube. There are a lot of eyeballs we need to take advantage of, or you know tap into. And our brand 
risks being put into the path of extinction if we don't engage with this new media and with this new format. At the same time, YouTube had made a big investment into a lot of, you know, media veterans and uh, people who, you know, come from TV, from film, who wanted to make a play in digital. And they funded all these programs, which is the YouTube original programming initiative. The challenge for them, though, was, okay, how do we actually make something that works on this platform? And then who do we use to understand that? And so what I did prior to even joining Fullscreen was create a YouTube channel. I read the playbook. I did all these experiments and best practices and what's the right thumbnail? How do you tag a video, et cetera? How do you write a, you know, an annotation that draws someone to click it? And we were fortunate enough to get one of our early contracts with NBC, actually. And NBC kind of took a gamble on, on full screen. And I was listening, you know, in one of your previous podcasts, uh, Phil Ranta talk about a gentleman named John Holdridge, who also came on to full screen shortly thereafter I joined and continues to run that business now, mm-hmm. which is great. And so I was kind of the guinea pig in this experiment, right? But did learn a lot and was able to offer some really interesting insights in regards to how you build a brand on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And so my first channel that I took over was the NBC channel. And in addition to that, the voice, which were basically just web pages with a couple logos on them and like a dumpster for content right? NBC had no real strategy at that point and had graciously enlisted us to take on that strategy for them. So I did that with NBC, did that for two months. And then this opportunity to do it in New York came up. And so this is, yeah, this is my thing. I wanted to be in New York, right? All the stars aligned. So all the stars aligned. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went out to New York and the deal was that we had with this company that if we were going to service their channels, they needed to have someone close by. And I actually worked in the office of this client for nine to 10 months about um, as the lone wolf first full screening. And How was that? Fortunately, the people were very welcoming and they had um, great content they were working on. And I got some great exposure to an industry I probably would not have um, being in L.A., and so I spent a lot of time really studying the platform and just making up these like kind of um, hack-like ways to uh, get this these channels more subscribers and more viewers. And what were the results? How did it work? The, the results are great. Yeah. Proud to say we now, or Fullscreen now, operates uh, over 26 of their channels, pretty much the entire NBC uh, YouTube library. And that business, I think they have over 60 plus uh, Fortune 500 clients. You know, in New York, for me, I got to go and start a new office once I left the client's office. And I got to, you know, help hire people and build a team over there, build the channel plus team. That's what we called the service that initially we're just calling infrastructure partners, right? It's just basically a partner, like a YouTube partner. Channel Plus is a better name. With an office. <laughs> yeah, with an office and a little more money. Uh-huh. So we um, you know, built that business from the ground up. And then and that's when things transitioned for me role-wise was kind of at the end of that Channel Plus era. And so you, you transitioned over to running more of the international partnerships. Yeah. You did deals with like the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Uh, you, as you touched on, moved to Brazil and opened that office. What else did you work on as part of the international effort? I'd always wanted to do the international stuff at full screen. When I came on board, the time was not right yet. So I had to kind of look for that opportunity. I noticed that YouTube was growing 
insane numbers, right? Mm -hmm. In in Brazil, YouTube by the day was growing and growing in Brazil. Um, the creator ecosystem was getting larger. The subscriber and view counts on those videos from those creators were getting larger. And it was. Why just do you think that was? Why totally Brazil hockey sticking? I think part of it is an emerging C class in Brazil with greater access to the internet. It's a very hyperactive social culture, one that, you know, has no hesitation to share videos or to, you know, build communities around videos. Real hotbed for creativity as well. And also just, just a big country, it just has a lot of people. And so, so I was keeping my eye on these channels. And at that time I spoke like very broken Portuguese, right? Portuguese, if you will. And I was like, I'm just going to reach out to them. I didn't sign YouTube channels to the MCN network. That wasn't something I'd done previously. But late nights and weekends, I was like, I'm just going to try and get these guys on board. And, and then I'm going to report back to, to HQ and, and see what they think. And so in doing that, I was able to partner what were then the top 10 most subscribed YouTube channels in Brazil. And some of these were doing 70 million views a month and were just massive jumps, wow. right? And I called up George, my brother. I called up uh, Ezra, his COO, and everyone else over there back in LA. And I said, hey, remember when we were talking about doing international? Well, check this out. Now's the time. Yeah. yeah. And they're like, you're totally right. You know, the first foray into international for full screen is we're going to go to Brazil where we know we're getting traction. We're going to go down there. We're going to understand. We're going to study the environment. We're going to talk to the creators one-on-one, -on -one, try to understand their pain points, and really try to make their lives easier as creators. Because we didn't want to be that company that says, well, we know it works in L.A., so it's going to work here, too. You know, we didn't want to take that uh, approach that so many brands and, and companies tend to do. So I went down there and I literally met with all the talent that I had signed previously. I sat down with, you know, people with 50 subscribers to 5 million, really trying to understand like what made creating content difficult for them, how we, what resources we had at full screen could be applied to making that easier for them. And so I spent about 18 months going to and from Sao Paulo and other parts of Brazil to LA and back and forth and really just building that business there. By the time I came back, those 18 months later, we had built a 7,000 channel network in Brazil with very few people involved too. You know, it was clear that like international was a big deal for us. And then we had to figure out how else we were going to work with creators around the world. Thanks to great leaders at the company who helped us scale the business, like Phil Ranto, previous guest on your show, you know, George, and then extremely talented, amazing leaders on the engineering side who allowed us to reach people outside of the United States, enabled us to create this massive amount of scale. But then we realized, well, shoot, uh, we're all here in LA. You know, how are we going to help a creator who's in Saudi grow his channel if not only we're um, sleeping when he's awake, we don't speak Arabic, we are communicating through Google Translate over email, and we don't understand the ecosystem, right? And so that's when I learned, okay, going down and seeding out a, a territory like Brazil and kind of you know, doing it this like guerrilla style is doable. But the lesson I learned is that it's hard. It's really hard because mm -hmm. it takes a Each lot of time. Each market is unique. Each market is unique. Yep. It takes a lot of time. You know, you have to physically put someone there. There's a lot of legal 
constraints. There's a lot of um, resource issues. But if we wanted to keep doing that, it would take a lot of time. I don't think we would be able to service the creators that we had already partnered in the network in time before they started looking elsewhere mm. and kind of uh, seeing what's out for them, mm. out there for them. So the the quickest way to do that was partner, of course. And that's when I started getting into more business development type things. One of which was in Canada that you, you mentioned in the Middle East. We did one, a partnership, did a partnership. And who was that with? We did a partnership with a company called Shora Media. They basically controlled all of the Middle Eastern uh, territory for us. Mm-hmm. And it was an interesting kind of partnership model because basically we said, we have built the the resources, we've built the infrastructure, we've built the network infrastructure, we've built the payment structures, we've built the content ID teams, we've built the tech platform. We have all the infrastructure. What we now don't have is local presence. We don't understand the language. We don't understand, you know, the community and how content is being created there. And we don't, we can't just add water, right? We need someone to bring that into us. And, you know, the natural fit we thought would be MCNs, right? All these local MCNs were popping up. That strategy ended up changing a bit, um, as you saw in Canada, partnering with a public broadcaster. That was the idea, right? It was to say, okay, here are our strengths. You know, there are your weaknesses. Let's marry. Let's make a, a cool business together. You have the tech prowess of full screen matched with the, you know, local understanding and creativity of of whatever particular country we're dealing with or region. And let's, uh, you know, go after talent together and let's find out ways to creatively support them. And so we also did that in all former Soviet states. So basically all Russian speaking territories hmm. uh, with a company that was based out of Latvia. And what company was that? It was a company called VlogPro and they still hmm. work with full screen to mm-hmm. this day. Really um, smart, just like very diligent, How did you go about finding these people and getting in touch? Once you do one, the others kind of fall into place. I'm always very personally interested in those conversations. Mm -hmm. So I took a lot of, in my years at full screen, took a lot of general meetings, you know, okay, what's your business? What country are you from? You know, and just kind of keeping them active in my mind. And then when it came time to engage as it uh, paralleled our strategy, then we'd go after them. What ended up happening on the business development side and uh, feel free to cut me off if I'm overwinding this question, is uh, we realized that a great partnership fit would be public broadcasters. Public broadcasters have a mandate by the government, right, to reach the citizens of that country through arts and media. In the past, they did that through television, through public access television, which was free to all, free for all people to, to watch and consume. Now the problem is anyone who's under the age of 28, 24, is not watching television, right? It's what their uncles and grandfathers are watching, right? Um, what are they watching video? What does full screen have? A lot of people who make video. So there's a natural fit there too. And uh, we were very fortunate to find uh, the CBC to cross paths with the CBC and create a partnership that is really like first of its kind in the sort of digital traditional space. That's awesome. And you mentioned earlier that working with local MCNs was not an effective strategy. Why was that the case? I think because at the end of the day, MCNs wanted to do the same things that we want to do in a mm, sense. It was too was, competitive. Well, it was really just controlling a CMS. And so, 
Yeah, that was part of the value that we had to offer in in a partnership like this was we understand how to operate a CMS, who the right people are that need to um, operate the CMS, how to create a CMS that can be scaled for tens of thousands of creators, including all their their assets. And at the end of the day, people who had just received that partnership with Google and had received that CMS were like very excited to get going on using that thing, right? Because it's a powerful tool and um, a lot of people try to get them and not too many would. This, of course, for anyone who's uh, not understanding of the, uh, of the tool we're talking about, basically enables you to provide an outlet of monetization to a creator. You didn't have monetization before, now you do, right? By partnering into this CMS. And so that's kind of why I think the fit wasn't perfect. It's not to say that there couldn't have been additional partnerships um, uh, with MCNs. I think it just made more sense to go after someone who needed something that we really understood and, uh, and partner that way. Other than Brazil and Canada and the Middle East, what were some other international markets that uh, were really important for full screen? So Europe, of course, is important. Um, the UK being one of those, I think... Full screen in particular was a bit of a slow mover, you could say, in the English uh, territory, and because of that, the market you know became quite quite flooded, as you know, and therefore, when we looked at a business in a, in a place like UK, it's like okay, well, that's the type of place you just set up shop and you run the cash flow businesses that you know will work, right? And so you know, I assume that's still in the works at full screen. That was really important. Of course, all of BRIC, including China. So, you know, Brazil, we had covered, we had Russia covered, we had a partnership in India as well. And then China is actually really important. And I think underexplored in the YouTube world, and most people say, well, there is no China in YouTube, which is 100% true. But that doesn't mean there isn't content in mm-hmm. YouTube. In, Do you follow what's going on on the seven major player platforms? And we I just do have, and I don't, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I think there's like a lot of opportunity for, you know, uh, for licensing, for, you know, um, kind of windowing that content out to different platforms. Mm-hmm. And there are businesses popping up in China that basically do that. They go and they package all your content and then they go put it out into all these different platforms. It's a strategy that never quite fully developed. I know full screen guys, uh, have it back in mind. And as you see in the film business, you know, it's such a major player in media. Mm-hmm. And I think to see... Increasingly so. I mean, the Chinese market continues to account for a large percentage of box office. Absolutely. And, and as you see the the digital influencer world merging with the film world, you know, I see that kind of being a big a big play in the future as well is figuring out how we can actually play ball on these platforms using these creators and, and the content that they make. What do you think of Alibaba's acquisition of Yuku? Smart. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I agree. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's a big platform, man. It's not going anywhere. I think uh, the UK people, you know, have spoken with them in the past and they're very aggressive and they, they understand how to build a business and how to build a media business. And there's been an issue around transparency for casual video creators for a long time. We take it for granted here in the U.S., but Chinese creators still struggle with inaccurate analytics and earnings information. Alibaba is, of course, very well known for introducing transparent business practices. Absolutely. And that was was always the big question mark for us Mm -hmm. when we looked at pushing content out there. It was like, okay, how do we get that reporting 
you know, how do we know that's true and verified yeah. reporting? But you'll see more of it. As you look at the video landscape today, what are some international markets everyone should be keeping their eye on? In terms of high growth, Southeast Asia is going to be very big. Uh, Indonesia, really all of APAC. Those are big, big growth areas. Brazil will continue to grow. India is going to be massive. Already is pretty massive. BRIC and APAC, I mean, primarily. The developed countries will always have these these um, you know, these systems to create and distribute, monetize, and then do it again with traditional content and, you know, premium media. But I don't think it's going to be anything that's like growing to the rate of which Southeast Asia is going to grow. Do you agree? I do agree. Yeah, I would have highlighted many of the same places. I think there's a lot happening, obviously, in India. There's been a lot of investment and acquisition activity, uh, a lot of MCNs popping up. I would say Turkey has seen a lot of growth, especially this year, in terms of video consumption, a number of MCNs in the region. I agree that Southeast Asia, I would expect more activity. We've got folks like Pops and Heho Vision mm-hmm. and Yeah One. And now CJNM is doing a lot of interesting things in Korea. Uh-huh. And um, Asia as well. yeah, so there's there's so many, right? But uh, I, I think we're going to see a lot more from Southeast Asia. Yeah. So. It's funny you mentioned Turkey. Turkey has been a great market for us at UNA. And that, that's one of those markets that's just kind of grown organically. Yeah. Word of mouth type mm-hmm. of thing. And I think it just coincides with the greater rise of social media in that country as a whole. So let's talk more about that and more about you now. Sure. What, you've Sounds been good. at the company now for two, three months? Yeah, three. I started October 1st. So right on. Congrats. Thank you very much. And what prompted the move? So the first thing did, and probably the most obvious thing is I work with my brother, right? And that's by and large been one of the best things that has ever happened to me. I work with someone who's very smart, very intelligent, and a good role model. And so... You know, I was blessed with the opportunity to work with him. Were you two always close growing up? Always close. Mm-hmm. I mean, my whole family is close and one of five kids. And we're all very, very close and supportive of each mm-hmm. other. And, you know, it's not one of those situations where, you know, you see siblings working together and they just can't stand each other. It's never that way. And I think it's one of the reasons we were able to work together so well. When I was in all these different territories, for example, in New York, if something wasn't going well, I would tell him, you know, not because I was worried about, you know, I wasn't worried about my job or I wasn't worried about like how my performance reflected against that. I just wanted the business to succeed. And there's that level of trust that was very special. So, you know, that's that's one thing to take note of. And a byproduct of that, having a brother as a CEO and founder of the company you work for is he's on the press a lot. Right? He's making a name for himself. He's branding my last name our last name as, you know, the guy who started and runs full screen and rightfully so. Right. You know, and I realized, I think as proud as I was to do all that I had done at full screen, I realized from the outsider's point of view, someone just looks at, someone could look at me and just say, Oh, that guy just, you know, has a job because those brothers, George's brother. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Right. That being said, I wanted to, uh, seek out a challenge where I would create a name for myself and uniquely myself, but still be able to be in a position where I can give back to the people who help put me on and help me uh, grow and, and, you know, give me the opportunities that I had. And so this opportunity with you now popped up. It's interesting because what I'm doing at you now is working on its partner program and attracting talent to the platform and talent managing companies so whether it's an mcn an agency 
or a talent management company and helping them take advantage of this beautiful platform. And in doing so, you know, you have to, you have to create par- partnerships that will be unquestionably valuable to the people who manage this talent. It's funny because what I'm doing actually is very similar to what my brother George was doing when he worked at YouTube. And when he worked at YouTube, his job was to bring talent to the partner program at YouTube and work with those talent as a strategic partner manager, you know, and show the world why this platform, YouTube, which had just been acquired by Google, was valuable, right? And how you could actually make money for doing those videos that you're doing. So George was doing that for the video on demand space. And it's almost like a reincarnation through me in life. And so that's kind of uh, how I ended up here. And uh, it's been fantastic. I mean, the, you know, camaraderie uh, community that's happening on you now is, is very special and unique. And um, how many monthly active users? How many do you think? Oh, gosh, if I had to guess, um, a few million. It's up there. Yeah, it's up there. Yeah, yeah. I won't dive into the numbers, okay. but um, that's exciting. It's pretty exciting, and uh, there's 150,000 broadcasts happening every day. You know, it's, it's, it's the kind of go-to space for live streaming for millennials in the Gen Z audience. And why live streaming? Why are you excited about that phenomenon? Phenomenon is a great word. I think it's just amazing to kind of have that experience that you get when you're watching a live stream and somebody reaches out and talks to you or interacts with you. This is really the natural evolution of media, right? First, you have text, and then you have real-time text, which is like Twitter, right? And then you have photo sharing, like Facebook. And then you have real-time photo sharing, which is like Snapchat, Mm -hmm. right? And then you have video, which is like YouTube. And so now you have real-time video, which is live. And So what's next in the progression? That's that's Real-time collaborative video? Well, in... in, VR... VR, I think, is, is something that will will pop up. I think people will do a lot of live VR stuff, uh, which would be really exciting. Live in particular is, uh, you know, if you were at a Beatles concert, you know, in the 60s, and all of a sudden Ringo Starr, you know, quits playing and goes up and says, What's up, James? Thanks for coming out today. You know, it'd just be like this, this weird rush of dopamine that, that is just like undescribed. Or if you're watching, you know, Al Roker in the morning mm-hmm. and he's like, hey, Alex, what's popping, man? It's like literally comes out of the screen. That's like the feeling I get every time mm-hmm. I interact with somebody on you now. And I've been there for three months and doing this every single day, of course. Whether you are, you know, sending them some fan mail, you're tipping them, you're giving them likes to their broadcast, you're asking them a special question and all the different ways you can interact with people on you now. And I think that's why it's uh, particularly special. The other reason is because everyone can have their own TV channel now. And that was such, that was like the holy grail like 10 years ago, right? Or maybe like 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Even going back to the original YouTube tagline, broadcast yourself, broadcast right? Yourself. The idea yeah. that you could be a creator, that you are your own television network on one. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, to that end, everyone named their channel, channel named TV, right? Or Channel X TV, Channel Y TV. And truthfully, it wasn't even really television. It was television on demand, right? Mm -hmm. And now that you can just tap into someone's own program, it's really special. And the fact that these platforms are being built in a way that 
encourages interaction. I could say at least for you now it does. You know, it's pretty, it's, it's, it's Periscope always says that their vision was to build like the closest thing to teleportation. And I think that's really cool actually, because, you know, in a sense that me watching you live stream something at that given moment and knowing that it's live with no lag is indeed pretty close to teleportation. Mm-hmm. So that's really what's exciting me about the space. So you mentioned Periscope. I have to ask you about some of the other competitors. Sure, please. What do you think about Twitch? What, you know, YouTube is doing with its live streaming, Facebook's live streaming initiatives. Yeah. What does the competitive set look like for you now? There's a lot of competitors, right? A couple of things to know is you now is actually a four-year-old company. And so it wasn't really until the last year or year and a half that it really took off. And that's due in part to a couple of things. One is the mobile products were sound, right? They're very well done. They'd been through years and years of iteration. And we're now at a point where, you know, you could access anything mobile. The other thing is you are, uh, there's a partner program. So you can actually make money by broadcasting on you now, you know, if you meet a certain uh, set of criteria. And so, uh, you know, that's like the key differentiator. And then it also occupies a very sought after space by advertisers. So the millennial space, the engaged millennial space, 70% of users take some sort of action on you now. And that's across all broadcasts, right? Whether that's gifting, liking, or sharing. When our company programs like clickable annotations in a broadcast, we see 20 to 30% click-through rate on wow. those uh, annotations, if you will. And so I think, uh, you know, you now is uniquely positioned in the Gen Z space. Where I see a company like Periscope, for example, it's more about journalism. It's more about reporting what's going on in the world as a symbol. Which aligns with the Twitter you know, relationship. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, you know, here's a common use case. You now, you see a guy playing guitar, putting out his new single for the first time or just singing to the crowd. And he's in his bedroom or on his sofa. And he's like reading what the people are saying. He's taking lyric suggestions. Maybe he's playing and dancing for them, mm-hmm. what have you, right? On Periscope, you'll see someone like, I'm reporting live from outside the Apple store, you know, for on behalf of Mashable, the iPhone 7 is about to be released, or, you know, um, I'm here in Benghazi, I'm here, you know, at the Rio Olympics. Um, it's more about like showcasing uh, what's in front of you. And in fact, although this doesn't describe every single difference between those two platforms, by default, the camera on you now faces you now. And on Periscope, it typically goes out. Yeah. That's the Periscope um, comparison. I think Facebook is a bit, it will, you know, we'll see as this, this is just coming out, right? But I think it will be a lot about, you know, people's own personal networks. That's about it. More of a curated personal social experience. Yeah, exactly. It's more about like the groups within your 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 particular network as opposed to being like, you know, a celebrity or a public figure, which is how they beta tested the product, of course. Yeah. So with live streaming, it, it seems to offer a creator an opportunity to have the content almost dictated by the audience or for the audience to play a more active role in what happens in the broadcast. Have you seen really great examples of that with you now? Totally. One of my favorite things to see on you now is when people take advantage of the guest broadcasting feature. What you can do is you can actually patch in one of your viewers into your broadcast. Hmm. So you'll split screen broadcast with them. 
And so uh, we see a number of publishers using this feature. We see BuzzFeed using this feature. We see MTV, Huffington Post, Refinery29, these folks using the feature. But uh, one of my favorite things to see it being used for is dance-offs. Oh, wow. And so people, awesome. people will just like, you know, put on a song on their laptop and they'll be like, all right, I'm going to guess whoever wants to dance battle me, you know, and then like the other person will come in. They'll uh-huh. hear the music from uh, it being broadcasted on the broadcaster's laptop. Mm-hmm. And then the people in the audience are just kind of voting like, <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, press one if you think, uh, you know. Uh, guy X should win or press two if you think guy Y should win. Uh, that's a really fantastic use of the platform. That's uh, awesome. So speaking of dance off, I hear that you know how to break dance. What? You <laughs> a little bird told me. So I do. Do you, do you I ever do. participate in these uh, impromptu dance battles on you now? I have not yet found the, the platform to participate in one. And I think if I did it too if I if, if think if I was caught doing that, I would be in some trouble. <laughs> but How did you get uh, yeah, V-boying? I was into b-boying. Um, basically, uh, messing around on my mom's carpet when I was, uh, you know, like ten years old. Mm-hmm. I used to call up the radio station and be like, "Can you play Around the World?" Which is a track from Daft Punk. Mm-hmm. I want to break dance to it, <laughs> and uh, the radio would put it on, and I just throw it down. Um, there's a f- cool picture actually of my brother holding up me on my head mm-hmm. by my legs mm-hmm. with a, I have a helmet on and that was like learning, learning how to, how to head spin. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And do you still know how to do it all? Still got I've, I've put on a few pounds since then, but <laughs> I can still be boy. Yeah. I think there are okay. some things. Right my meals and stuff. Nice. Well, maybe in another venue where we have more space, <laughs> you'll have to show me your skills. I'd love to. I used to break dance as well. No way. Yeah. So I'll have to throw it down sometime. Wow. <laughs> You, little, so you look little more fit than facts. me now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. I also have heard that you're an active member of Toastmasters. I How am, has yeah. that helped you in your career? Well, if you can tell by the way I'm speaking now, it hasn't helped me that much. <laughs> <laughs> I feel very you mumbly. you got to keep going to those meetings. I, yeah, I've dipped down on a few. Yeah. I feel very mumbly today. <laughs> but it's funny because it's just by simply being aware of or just by simply thinking about yourself speaking every week, you actually end up improving the way you speak. Go figure. It's not always all the all the techniques and the patterns and the things that they teach you, which of course do help. Um, but it's the practice. But the it's just like being conscious of it, mm-hmm. right? If you're thinking about the way you speak every single day, you're naturally going to speak better. But it's been a great club to be a part of. And it's also cool because the club I am a part of in Culver City is a great mix of people. It's people from all different walks of life. And when you work in digital media, you tend to be around people that are in digital media most of the time. And not saying everyone in this industry is the same, but we have similar views on you know work and you know the world. And so it's good to get that diversity every week as well. Are there any takeaways or tips you can share from all your time in Toastmasters? Uh, yeah, I could share some things. I think it's very important to change your tone of voice to, of course, eliminate the amount of filler words you use. Speaking in lists is very good. You've also participated in several philanthropic efforts, including tutoring elderly immigrants in North Philadelphia, mentoring high school students through the LA Fund for Public Education program. Tell us a little bit more about the reason you got involved in those projects. Well, I wanted to figure out a way in which I could use my um, talent and languages to make this world a better place, right? When I was in Philadelphia, I found this group called Project Shine, which is basically an effort that pairs up 
folks uh, who come from other countries at an old age to help them learn English to basically get them ready for a citizenship test. And if you've ever seen a citizenship test, I clearly haven't been to Toastmasters <laughs> in a couple of weeks. It's pretty hard, right? And it's not exactly a test you would assume can easily be uh, taken and, and mastered by someone who had just immigrated from a country speaking another language for years and years and years. So I thought I'd you know, help teach English there. You don't necessarily need to know foreign languages to teach English, but it helps kind of to understand what difficulties they may have with certain pronunciation, with understanding like conjugations or lack thereof in English, things like that. And that's been really, really rewarding. Uh, I've made it um, my mission this Christmas to do more than seek more. Right. And I think anyone who does that will, will be very rewarded. You have diverse interests that include soccer, mm-hmm. skating, and hustling people at chess. So we've got the chessboard <laughs> here. So good thing we didn't bet money on this game. I would certainly be losing. But you're also an investor and I've heard freestyle rapper. Yeah, I can, <laughs> I can rap a little bit. So there's so much there. A lot of directions we could go in. Where do you want to start? Well, soccer has always been a big part of my life. I played in college is one of the ways I got uh, you know, into college in a sense. <laughs> you know, that's been a, always been a huge part of my life. I actually tried out for the Galaxy in January. How'd it uh, go? I didn't make it, but I had a great <laughs> tryout. Uh, I was like, I'm not getting any younger. I quit the college team toward the you know end of my career in college in the pursuit of other talents and interests. I wanted to study abroad. I wanted to... I ended up running for a student body president, things like that. And I uh, couldn't do that while playing college soccer full time. And I was like, you know, maybe uh, I won't pursue going pro. And so then I got out of college. I got the job. I did like the things, the other world things I wanted to experience. And I was like, maybe I should just try and play one more time, like try out for this team. And I did. I had a couple goals and, uh, and an assist in two games. So that's great. It was a good turnout. I still play. I still play. The all Galaxy time. missed out. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. And then, you know, chess. I love playing chess. Used to play in the parks in New York City when I lived there. That was the way I would make my money to go out uh, on a weekend, uh, go play and uh, hustle some tables for an hour or two. And so how does that work? Park chess is great uh, psychological training. It doesn't always make you a better chess player, but it makes you better at sticking to what you know not letting intimidation and fear get in the way of playing. Because I can tell you from experience playing in these parks for the very first time, I was very scared and very intimidated Why is that? and lost a lot. Because you you come and you sit down next to some guy who's you know trying to ask you to, to play for money. You're not comfortable with that. You're going to play on the clock. A lot of chess players um, hadn't really, you know, play too much on the clock. And you sit down and you look at this guy who's like clearly has like, you know, his butt cheeks and grooved into the uh, cement on the chair because he's been there so long. He has a lot of history or she and you get a little scared and they move quickly because they play the same systems over and over and they hustle. That's how they win. And so it's a great way to make some quick cash, but it's not exactly the way you learn to, uh, you know, think out complex systems and how to respond to those. But the way it work is I would set up a table. I bring my table, I bring my pieces, I bring my clock. And I would just wait for basically anyone to come and sit down. The real reward was winning against other mainstays in the park. But the more frequent win was with the tourists from Minnesota or something like that. Sure. Right. And um, when you would battle other guys in the park, how much would you wager on the games? Five bucks. 
Yeah, usually five bucks. And they're quick games. They're pretty quick games. Mm-hmm. They're five minute matches. Some mm-hmm. some of them we play two minute, which is bullet. Wow, that's kind of senseless chess in a bit in a way. But uh, especially when you play with people who you play all the time, mm-hmm. you guys play the same first, you know, fifteen moves, and then it's the game. You know, and a lot of times I just play for fun, and that's ultimately what I was yeah. playing. But at that time, I was in New York working for a scrappy startup. If I wanted to go out and have a good time, whatever it was I was doing, it wouldn't help to have a couple extra bucks in my pocket. There we go. And what about the freestyle rapping? Freestyle rapping is just just always happening at every get together with friends. My brother, we still freestyle to this day. In Greek? You know, I love to rap in other languages, <laughs> personally. Not too many other people do, you know? <laughs> when does your EP drop? My EP drops 2030. Nice. Yep. Live release on you now. Live release we'll on tap you now. We'll see where technology is then. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk more about, say, failure. What has been your greatest failure and what did you learn from it? That's a great question. Uh, I think one is fear about how people will look at me, how people will judge me. You listen to the voices of negative people or naysayers and, that you've heard in the past either if it's directed at you or not. And you you kind of build up, you know, a fear, which is ultimately just against yourself of, you know, if you do something or if you say something or if you reply a certain way on a thread, how people are going to think about you. And I think that's when people are at their worst is when they're constantly second guessing, not expressing the way they are. And I think if you look at it that way and you become a bit more, I guess, unapologetic, you know, you find your natural rhythm and you can express what you actually mean. doesn't mean you won't encounter some haters and naysayers along the way. You most certainly will. But at least you're confident in saying what is true to your instinct and your gut. And then I think another thing is um, to that end is um, I always wanted to be everything to everybody. Something I still continue to struggle with is. I want to be everybody's friend and I want uh, them to enjoy me and to see value in me as a friend. And and I've realized that sometimes you just kind of have to say no and turn opportunities down. That's a tough lesson to learn for sure. I can't point to a, a specific instance mm-hmm. as the greatest failure that prompted me to think that. But I think that's those are probably the things right there. Very true on both accounts. What are some of the things that you've done to break out of the fear? I just realized that you're going to be old one day and you're going to have, you're going to look back and say, I wish I would have, what would have happened if I, right? And so, for example, trying out for the galaxy, I feel totally at peace now with soccer. I had this fear that, oh man, maybe I should have stayed in college soccer and try to be pro. You know, all my friends are going pro now. I was a good forward, this, that, and the next thing. And then I said, well, I'm going to give it a chance, you know, go give it a try. And I didn't make it and I'm okay. You know, I'm happy. I think it's just like addressing that fear head on, realizing that your time is very limited on this earth. You should try every single thing you want to do, no matter what anyone tells you. And Anything uh, left on that list for you? Trying things? Yeah. Oh my God, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Good, definitely. Good. I'm afraid the list gets larger mm-hmm. <laughs> as I go. That's the trouble. Even as I'm crossing them off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I man. think that's a sign that you're doing it right. I want to do some crazy things, you yeah. know. I want to own a high school one day. Why? (laughs) 
I just think that'd be cool to be able. Can to, you really own to, a high school? Like, I guess a private. Start camp. a high school. Sure, sure. You start a high school and and then you run it mm-hmm. and you inspire people to do great things and to uh, use their minds and, and innovate and you know create new businesses, create new philanthropic ventures, figure out how to help people and be good to people. You know that's something like that I really want to do. Um, that's a cool <laughs> yeah, you know, things like that. Right? Yeah. More power to you. I want to drop an EP in 2030. <laughs> 2030. We're all looking forward to that. Mark the date on your calendar. You know it. What books have you read recently that you just couldn't put down? Let's see. I read Rule and Rule of the Bone. Who's that by? Uh, Russell Banks. This is a great adventure book, kind of like Catcher in the Rye. I'm uh, actually not a very big reader. You know, I think a lot of people would be ashamed to say that, but I'm such an audio-based learner that you know I've listened to tons of books. And I learn through language, through example. And so I'm very, very audio based. So I end up reading a lot of news. I'm a big nonfiction reader, right? News, history. I'm trying to get more and more into fiction, but really if like, you know, I'll, I'll sit down and read a whole chess book before I could read, you know, a Dr. Seuss book, right? <laughs> Something like that. Because I feel like it's adding like real value to me. But as I've worked in entertainment, which is something I not never thought I would really be doing, I understand the value of telling stories and how that is a way of learning things, even though the things that are being told may not be factual. Any recommendations? Any recommendations for someone who's an auditory learner? Yeah. Uh, Gosh, wow. I mean, I am someone who learns a lot from reading. Uh, I'm also a kinesthetic learner, so I learn by doing or from examples from others. Auditory is probably my weakest way of learning, but obviously I love podcasts. I'm also a big fan of of books on tape. Like you are, I would say I I tend to read more than I would listen to a book on tape because I'm also very impatient Mm -hmm. and I get tired of the the voice speed, so I I want to read ahead. And even when I listen to podcasts, people... speed those up sometimes. That's true. I was just going to say, when people get in my car, they're like... Why do the voices sound so weird? And I say, well, I'm listening to the podcast at one and a half one or two half X speed. speed yeah. And it just freaks people out. But for me, I mean, I need that like quick flow of information. I watch so, there we go. <laughs> so gosh, no, I don't have a lot of other things to recommend. I guess one thing I will share, which is amazing. And this isn't necessarily related to being an audio learner, but it's about memory. There's this thing called a dual in back, which is a learning game that you can do. It's a brain training exercise where you will be played one sound and a light will show up on a, a kind of like a chessboard, a grid of, of three by three, so nine squares. And you need to indicate if there are matching sequences of these sounds and the uh, color tile appearances in this grid. You start by doing it. You have to remember a sequence of things that are uh, two sequences back. And then you have to go to three sequences back, four sequences back. And the, the more you do it, the harder it gets. And it is like so strenuous on your brain. I mean, it's, it is exhausting. It's mentally exhausting. But that, more than anything, has improved my short-term and working memory. It has translated to other skills, like presenting or speaking skills, and had impacts on my ability to learn. I mean, more, more so than anything. And, and those skills stick with you. So if you do it and you mm. practice for 20 minutes every day, you mm. know, I'll be able to go back and do maybe not five back like I used to, but I can do yeah. probably three and maybe even four back. So tool and back training. Tool and back training. Yeah. And it's a little, it'd be tough to find, but I'll send you a link if you want. I love that. I'm all about the yeah. habit-based things, sure. skill-based kind of learning. Totally. And I have an app on my phone. I used to play this game called Lumosity. So Luminosity. a great yeah. brain training app. I now yeah. use uh, one called Elevate. 
All and right. I do that every day. I play the Elevate training exercises and, and some of them are a little silly and, and just kind of fun gamification. But the one, I mean, a lot of them are very challenging. And I found that I, you know, while I did okay in math and school, I mean, I struggled to do like the estimation exercises now or mm-hmm. some of the discounting exercises. Whereas I'm really good at like language recall or I can think of synonyms for, for words or put syntax together. But mm-hmm. I struggle with some of the math-based pieces. Hmm. Yeah. Nice. So. That's a great sell on Elevate. I mean, are you sure this isn't a sponsor? Because <laughs> I'm convinced. Sponsor, but I love it. I mean, I don't like, pay for a paid account. I just use the free service. But I'm yeah, convinced. I want to check it out. So what's coming next? If you had to make three predictions about the online video space, what would they be? Integration of virtual reality into the live space. I don't really see anyone out there doing that. Well, anyway, you know, you could live broadcast from you now and strap it to a drone that's kind of and then like view it through vr somehow like that's kind of uh, that's where we're going you know next level future sort of thing but also very uh you know strenuous and uh, difficult to do i think that's one thing let's see i think uh i think there will be like a ton of consolidation in subscription video as you know, everyone is making their own OTT platform. And including th- very prominently full screen. Including full screen, right? I think like in two years from now, we'll be able to name all the ones that count on two hands. So I think there'll be some consolidation in that space. You know, and I could be totally wrong. It could also be like a YouTube type of thing where it's just like niche, 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 niche everywhere you go. And so there's that. And then let's see, third... Uh, in the online video space prediction, I think Facebook's going to do a really good job with video. 2016 and looks to be the year of video for Facebook in a big way. I think that's a great prediction. It's had a few hiccups along the way and, you know, gotten some pushback from the community for freebooting and, you know, has been questioned as to whether or not it can actually build a content ID system of relative value to what YouTube has, this, that, and the next thing. But by and large, has made an insane push into uh, the video space in such a short amount of time. And I think that will only continue to grow. And as Facebook figures out how to you know, roll out monetization for folks creating content, that'll be even bigger for them. Yeah, I think those are you know a few. It sounds weird to call out Facebook and just say that's one of my predictions from the online video space. But if you were to, you know, if this question was asked in 2006... You know, you'd say YouTube, right? It's re- it was really all about YouTube for several years, and I think that is finally going to start change a little bit. YouTube will always have its place, and it will always be important. You know, we'll continue to to innovate and, and add new new things that people will find interesting, but. I think Facebook's going to be doing something very special. And ultimately, that's a good thing for creators, right? Giving them more choice and more opportunities to reach an audience. Absolutely. If you were starting a business in the online video space today, what would you do? I would do something that helps get exposure to the international creative communities because I think they're very underrepresented in mainstream media as a whole. And yet, if you go to India, if you go to China, Korea, Brazil, you find that there's amazing talent all over the world. And because we happen to live in this world where English is the lingua franca, which is oddly not even an English word, uh, (laughs) we only consume and we only are seeking content that is, uh, you know, generated from, from English speakers you know, the creative communities in these territories definitely deserve a voice 
And so it's not going to happen unless there is a major play in providing those outlets and creating that link to kill the beast from within, so to speak, and to get into Hollywood and kind of create that traction. So is that a technology platform? Is it a, you know, distribution solution that needs to be worked out? What are the the pain points there today? Well, that's a great question. Well, I I just created this business. (laughs) I love the idea. No, I completely (laughs) agree that it would be solving a huge problem. You know, would love to help with that. Like, what does this look like? I think it's very much a relationship-based start right Mm -hmm. it's it's nothing like too sophisticated on the tech side of things you don't need to create the best technology to find the best creators while although i do understand it helps you reach more creative minds i think to start there's just like a list of high quality talent in each country that isn't getting the global voice they don't have the global platform and so it's figuring out the right format in which this is, can be palatable to English audiences, English speaking audiences, particularly American audiences who are what control, you know, so much of what we consume and read and watch. And so it's kind of figuring out how you make that content really interesting for English speaking audiences in a way that, you know, that makes sense and isn't just like shock factor level content, but it's like, something that you could follow and tune into on a weekly basis. Can't wait to see where that happens one day. Yeah, you know, I, I, I know there are companies out there doing that, and mm-hmm. I hope to see them succeed. So closing thoughts, what's coming next for Gregory and for you now? So you'll see uh, uh, me working hand-in-hand hand with a lot of creators looking to harness the power of live video. My mission will be to help them see the utmost value in you now as a platform for that. We'll continue to seek the feedback of the creators and constantly try to build an environment that they see as truly interactive, as a social television experience, as opposed to, you know, just a live feed. And so I'll be collecting that feedback and closing the loop with the engineers and the product teams. I think that's what you'll see from me. You now has a very big year ahead of it. I would argue that we have very good lead time in amongst all the other players in the space. But I think it will also be about making sure that we define our angle. We happen to have an audience that is very specific and it's about letting the world know that that audience exists. That starts with uh, working with the talent. So that'll be my job to make sure that uh, they understand that that value does exist for for those creators. And where can people find out more about you and their favorite live streaming platform? Well, they can find out more about me by emailing me if they so choose to mm-hmm. at gregory at younow.com. They could also find me on Twitter at Strompolis is my name. So that's at in my last name. How does the rest of the family feel about that? I was first to it. Man. <laughs> There's this whole battle. <laughs> well, my brother has G strong holes, okay. which is also my. This know? is true. So I'm like, hey, great. Question. Your brother is also famous for getting into Twitter battles or Twitter rants with people. Yeah, kind of, man. What about you? you you're not as. I'm pretty low. Key. I'm pretty low key on Twitter. Okay. I've been getting a lot more active in the last year or so. Yep. I use it as my news platform. Sure. You know, so I've just been getting a little more active in the conversation recently. Yeah, so you can you can find me that way. I will be sure to interact with you that way. As far as you now goes, keep your eyes peeled in the news. There is a lot of exciting projects coming up with 
big programmers, big networks, so to speak. For example, we just partnered with America's Got Talent to host live virtual editions, which so should have cool. been my example, actually. So cool. When I, when I, when I of the you, dance battles, yeah. You know, you'll see those things and popping up and, uh, you know, hopefully this will be a good year for us. Can't wait to see it all happen. It's going to be awesome. Thank you so much. Gregory, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been so much fun and great to hear kind of uh, the stories and your career progression. So Likewise. thanks again. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time. A reliable Wi-Fi connection is as vital as your wallet. With Skyrim, you won't be trapped in a cafe or wander for Wi-Fi again. For work or fun, the Solus 4G LTE Wi-Fi hotspot has you covered with fast Wi-Fi across the U.S. and in 130 countries. And with its built-in power bank, devices stay charged on the go. Get data by the day, month, or gig. No contracts. Go to skyroam.com slash techpod to save 20% off a of Solus with code techpod20. Business Insider calls it a must-have travel gadget. Visit skyroam.com slash techpod. Offer code techpod20.